our scripture reader this morning, and she will be reading from 1 Corinthians 1, beginning in verse... For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to, sh to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Dear Father, we are thankful for your kindness, your ways. Uh, we're thankful for your wisdom and uh, your foolishness uh, because your foolishness bests anything that we can come up with. Um, it saves. It saves by grace through faith. Who could have thought of that but you? Uh, and so help us to delight in your uh, ways, to delight in Christ crucified this morning. Uh, free us from being enamored uh, with the wisdom of the world, the debaters of this age, the powerful, the, those of noble birth. Um, help us to be satisfied with Jesus, um, that you would be all we need. Uh, we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks to everyone who came out last week to the Panhandle. Uh, we had a prayer walk through the neighborhood because the school uh, hosted an event. I think it was actually the 100th anniversary of this building, which is cool. Um, and so they were here for that. And we took the opportunity to meet in the park and then prayer walk through the neighborhood and pray um, over our city. So one group, we sort of split up into three groups and or four groups and, and spread out. One group prayed through NOPA and specifically for new traditions and all SFUSD schools, all San Francisco schools. A second group headed in the direction of Golden Gate Park and prayed for the houseless who live there, those who live in Golden Gate Park, for the Outer Circle Ministry and pancakes that we do on Tuesday for the homeless throughout the entire city. And then last, a group walked hate and just prayed for the people and culture of SF broadly, um, which hate uh, represents uh, so significantly. Um, and then a crew stayed at the playground with kids and prayed and prayed for um, our children and the people in the park. 
um, in the panhandle. So on Sundays, uh, it's so helpful, um, surprisingly helpful. We get booted uh, from the school every probably maybe like five or six times a year. And it is helpful. It kind of throws us off it and helps remind us what Sundays are for in so many ways. Uh, as we gather, it's so easy to forget everything that's going on outside. Um, and sometimes turning off the outside is a gift. It's helpful to come in and discipline ourselves to focus and, pers- and uh, gain perspective on eternal truths, but it also can be helpful on Sundays to consciously remember our surroundings while we worship. Uh, as Christians, we gather to worship every week for many reasons. Uh, first, we gather to worship because God is worthy of our worship. Uh, he is creator, sustainer, redeemer, king, and judge. He is good, perfect, and true. He deserves our worship, and that's why we're here. That's why we do this, because he deserves our worship in response. We also gather to worship because we need worship. Um, I don't know about you, but when I am absent for a number of Sundays in a row, it, it affects my soul. And, and that affect is almost immediately restored when I find myself back with the people of God, singing together, worshiping together, taking communion on a weekly basis. Um, I've told many people over the years that in order to sustain Christian faith in San Francisco, uh, you need to join a church. You need to be a part of a community. Uh, Faith will not survive here apart from a gathering of saints. Uh, It just won't survive. Uh, Worship makes us whole. It invites us to rest in the gospel, to let God be God, to recall the finished work of Christ, to receive grace, to remember hope a hope that isn't tied to anything that we do, uh, but is tied to what Christ has already done. And as we consider what it means to know the truth, if Proverbs is right that the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord, it is really wise to begin every week by remembering the Lord, by fearing him, and, and recognizing, again, the gospel. So we worship for God's sake because he deserves it. We worship for our sake because we need it. But we also worship for the world's sake. We gather for the sake of the world. Our commitment to worship weekly, to gather as a faith community around the gospel of Christ, to follow Jesus together in San Francisco, it brings blessing to the city. It brings blessing to San Francisco. Um, Just our presence um, is meaningful here. I used to scoff and sometimes can be prone to scoff when you know, somebody like the Pope would announce that he's just sort of like descending on a world crisis. You know, he's just like, I am arriving. You know, you sort of wonder like, what is the big deal? Like there's a war going on. There's so much turmoil. Like why does the Pope need to go? Um, what is being accomplished in that? And, and to be sure, there is nothing extra powerful about the Pope um, in a, on a spiritual level, but insofar as he represents the presence of Christ, and Christ's body, I believe his visit accomplishes something real. It is significant for Christians to come as Christians into hard places. Um, We are the temple of the living God. Uh, Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians 3, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? We are God's temple, and what are temples? They are meeting places between God and the world. In and through us, in and through our church and all the churches in San Francisco, God is both present in San Francisco and San Francisco is present to God. 
San Francisco's needs are brought before God, and God's truth is brought before San Francisco. It's a two-way street. Like Jacob's ladder, you remember that vision with angels ascending and descending to do the work of the Lord. They are ascending and descending at God's holy place, which is now his church. And so in last week's simple prayer walk, we brought the needs of San Francisco to God and asked for his help. Let's be honest, though, if, I have, if I'm honest with myself, not much happened. If you walk the neighborhood again this week, would anything be different? What lasting good did we do out there? Could we not have used our extra hour to, to actually do something, right? To pick up trash, to feed the homeless? Weren't there more productive uses of our time? Are there more productive uses of this time? Have you ever asked yourself that question and wondered, man, what could I do with Sunday mornings? Given all of San Francisco's problems, the country's problems, the world's problems, an hour of prayer is such a tiny thing, an insignificant thing. Why didn't we do something? Or for that matter, why didn't we do nothing? Wouldn't it have been more productive to just take the week off? And the thing is, those are two very reasonable responses to the world's persistent brokenness, activism and escapism, right? There are people who respond to the world's intractable needs by working harder, and there are people who respond to intractable needs by checking out. And honestly, both make great sense. You know what doesn't make much sense, though, is prayer walks. I mean, I, I found myself thinking that last week. I have to confess, there were moments on our walk where I felt silly, like walking the streets and sort of, it's, it's a funny discipline to walk and you're sort of in conversation, but you're so, sort of praying. I'm new at this, um, but the reality is faith in the modern world feels silly sometimes. Uh, I think it was heightened because my older kids with, were with me. I have an 11, 12, and 14-year-old um, who think that nothing is cool. Um, and I kept wondering to myself, like, what are they thinking? They were walking the street with me and, and with us. This surely feels so dumb to them, as everything does. A waste of time. Uh, they had all asked that morning if they could stay home. Um, and then when we got here, they asked if they could stay at the playground. It, like, really warms your heart as the dad who is a pastor uh, that these are the questions I get every Sunday morning. Um, I found myself honestly especially fearful when I prayed against school shootings. Like, that came to mind as we were praying for schools. It's like one of the biggest fears that you have as a parent, and it's a fear that is re-upped on a regular basis. And so it felt good and important to pray that the Lord would protect San Francisco from school shootings. But then I remember thinking almost immediately, like, what if it happens anyway? And not only have I prayed it, I have, like, voiced it in front of my children. Like, how will I talk to them? How will I explain that? This was some of the good, uh, but hard work, uh, humiliating work that prayer walking did for me last week. Um, it's not what I expected, uh, but it's honest and important. I feel like the prayer walk, by externalizing my prayers— by making them public, 
by bringing my faith out into the open, it exposed doubts that I have, which I can now bring before the Lord and before you and ask for prayer. Mark 9, 24, immediately the father of the child cries out and says, I believe, help my unbelief. And I experienced that quite a bit last week, praying through the city in a way that I don't when I'm just at home praying quietly to myself. In fairness to my doubting heart, though, prayer walks are foolish. They are silly. Given all that's wrong, all that's needed, isn't it like taking a water gun to a forest fire? That like little me in San Francisco on a street on Clayton or wherever is asking the Lord to come and do big things. It's like bringing a few pennies to a home sale. Like, what are you going to do with that? What do you think is going to happen? Why try? Here's the thing, though. Christianity itself is foolish, and that is by God's design. He has made the gospel foolish on purpose. 1 Corinthians 1.27, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. He chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. In our uh, series on truth and knowledge, pursuing truth and knowledge, uh, last week we highlighted the foolishness of sin, that sin at heart is foolish. Sin always begins with and is sustained by the willful suppression of truth. And that's the definition of foolishness, to see the truth, to know it, but act as if it's not true. That is foolish. There is no more basic truth than the truth of God, the reality of his existence, authority, power, and goodness. And in pursuit of our own glory, the sinner willfully denies God's glory. I pretend as if he's not there, that his glory is not there. Rather than receive the truth of God, the sinner pushes truth away, and that is foolish. According to the Bible, sin is foolish. But the wrinkle for today is that the Bible also says the gospel is foolish. That there is a kind of suppression of reality that happens in grace. And that is what this week is about in 1 Corinthians 1. And the ending will be, you got to be a fool somewhere, so... How are you going to be a fool? I love 1 Corinthians, First uh, and 2 Corinthians. Those are my two favorite books of Scripture. I think Corinth is the biblical city most like San Francisco. And, of, and of course, people are people, and so you can find yourself in every place and every setting in Scripture. But Paul's word to the Corinthians is the easiest to access. Uh, why do I think that? These books cover a lot of ground, but there are two primary themes— as I read it, 1 Corinthians is about how the foolishness of God trumps the wisdom of mankind. And 2 Corinthians is about the, how the weakness of God trumps the strength of mankind. Foolishness over wisdom, weakness over strength. And that's important for Paul because Corinth, like San Francisco, was a city obsessed with projecting wisdom and power. And I am a person that is often obsessed with projecting wisdom and power. And it's helpful for me to remember that God uses the foolish to shame the wise, and he uses the weak to shame the strong. Uh, Roman Corinth was a relatively young city. 
uh, rebuilt by Julius Caesar in 44 BC. That makes it only about 100 years old at Paul's writing. Uh, No one there had a long history. It was primarily made up of transplants, Romans, Greeks, and Jews who weren't, who didn't grow up there, but moved there. Um, Many who came there came to make a name for themselves because there was a lot of opportunity in Corinth. Uh, Since it doesn't have a long history, you can easily make history there. Uh, It was located along an isthmus. Do you remember that word? That feels like a word that you just like learn in geography and it sticks in your brain. It's a land bridge, Um, an isthmus. Um, Pretty hard to say uh, in a microphone. But anyway, um, it made it an important spot for travel and trade. It was prosperous, cosmopolitan. It was religiously pluralistic. Uh, To the Judeo-Christian person, it was idolatrous, greedy, and sex-obsessed. Um, Again, all these things feel like a bit like San Francisco, right? Um, The Corinthian church, living as it did in such a vibrant, culturally rich, up-and-coming city, it began to fantasize about its own success. And so Paul was regularly having to bring them, uh, bring their fantasies back down to reality um, and remind them that Jesus was better. Uh, they kept thinking to themselves, what would it be like for them to be great, for them to be prosperous and powerful? Uh, Corinth was a city that regularly hosted famous traveling philosophers and speakers. Maybe their own Christian philosophers and speakers could be famous too. But that wasn't happening, and they were frustrated. In the passage we read today, Paul points out, 1 Corinthians 1.20, where is the one who is wise among you? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Verse 26, consider your calling, brothers and sisters. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. Paul is sort of sticking his finger in their shame and their woundedness. The church simply wasn't attracting famous, wise, powerful people. They weren't experiencing the upward cultural mobility enjoyed by so many of their neighbors. And in the case of Corinth, their shame over this eventually turns them against Paul, where they begin to be critical of him. Quite frankly, the church has become embarrassed of Paul. Uh, Corinth is a culturally sophisticated city with culturally sophisticated people. Uh, Paul, according to them, was not sufficiently skilled at rhetoric and persuasion. Uh, He wasn't a good speaker. He wasn't savvy. He refused to be paid, preferring to make tents for a living, preferring to be homeless. He regularly got himself in trouble where he was beaten and kicked out and uh, spat upon. And this bothered them. They wanted a poster child in Paul, but instead got a warning sign. So that the Christians in Corinth began to think that Paul was the reason they weren't more successful. Paul was the why, was why the gospel wasn't taking off among the movers and shakers of Corinth, the cultural elite and the philosophically inclined. The thing is, though, we've read Paul's letters. We know he's a good thinker and that he's a gifted communicator. We know from the book of Acts that he was highly educated and could wow people in Athens. In Greek and Hebrew schools, uh, he was taught. In Acts 17, he quotes Greek philosophers He's able to offer sophisticated readings of the Old Testament. He's not a dummy, and yet he agrees with the Corinthians in their assessment of him. He chose to live differently in Corinth than we see him in Athens and other places. 
1 Corinthians 2, 1, I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. In chapter 4, verse 11, he says, To the present hour we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor, working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. And they're asking, why does it have to be that way? If Paul can speak well, if Paul could take a salary, if the gospel, as we all believe, is compelling and true and beautiful, why does Paul not market himself better? Why doesn't he market Jesus better? And to our surprise for Paul, this mediocre presentation is a conscious decision. Chapter 2, verse 1, I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of man, but in the power of God. This is shocking, if you think about it. Paul is basically admitting to throwing the game, right? Being less than he could be on purpose. The implication is that he could have shifted his strategy and perhaps drawn more people, but he decided not to. And that's crazy it's crazy to me friends that is not why citizens is this size because i have like thrown the game on purpose <laughs> right okay like that is not what is happening here i am doing the very best i can um so what is going on here for the christian it is axiomatic it is it is on principle basic truth that the gospel is the message of salvation by grace through faith in Christ, not of yourselves, lest anyone should boast. Ephesians 2.8, we should memorize it. It's so basic. The gospel is by grace, through faith in Christ, not of ourselves, lest anyone should boast. And so why is the gospel by grace? So that no one will boast. If you remember, humanity's desire to boast is what got us into this mess. And the desire for boasting is what keeps us here. It keeps us from confession and repentance and humility. Pride is the seed and substance of sin. It is our main barrier to repentance. And if all that's true, then it is essential that we not boast in our wisdom as Christians. This has implications for both Paul's message and his method. First, Paul's method. Again, for Paul, it's so important that we not boast of our salvation lest we miss it entirely. And that feels extreme, but if you listen to 1 Corinthians 1.17, that's what Paul is worried about. If he follows the Corinthians' advice that he will rob the gospel of its power. Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, why lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power? And so for Paul, if he came preaching eloquently, 
attractively. It wouldn't just be distracting or off-putting or vain or whatever. Paul could actually empty the cross of Christ of its power, making Christ's cross unable to save. And that means it's so important to him that he not evangelize, teach, or pastor in such a way that encourages boasting. And so Paul, perhaps knowing his own giftedness, he leans into the foolishness of the gospel in his preaching. He leans into the weakness of the cross in his ministry. Because it's the very foolishness of the gospel and the weakness of the cross that saves us. That is what saves. This word of Paul's on method in 1 Corinthians 1 is, is so relevant to our quest for truth and knowledge. How we go about pursuing truth. Because it's so easy for us to pursue truth in a way that magnifies our own glory. Uh, Paul is pointing out an ongoing temptation, even as Christians, to boast in knowledge. And to counter this temptation, we have to be careful in our truth-seeking. If we're honest, so much of our truth-seeking is actually glory-seeking, where I only want to know the truth so I can boast in it. I want to be the one who's the most well-read, the most reasonable, who sees all the sides, who's able to provide context. I want to have the correct opinion. I want to be on the right side of history. I want to be vindicated. I want to be seen as sophisticated. I want to be clever and thoughtful and respected. That's the kind of truth that I want. But not all truth will get you that. The thing is, that extra rider on my quest for truth, it distorts what I am willing to accept as truth. If my truth is to be glorified, I'm going to choose the truths that get me the most glory. It's like an arrow whose fins are off, you know, the feathers on the end of the arrow. If they're not right, if they're bent or crumpled or miscentered, it's going to throw off the trajectory of the arrow, and you're going to miss truth entirely. Because I don't just want any kind of knowledge. I want the kind of knowledge that leads to glory. I don't just want to know the truth. I want to be known for knowing the truth. And that is a strong temptation in this city, and there's a big difference between knowing the truth and being known for knowing the truth. There's a deadly difference there. Because when I want to know the truth so I can boast in it, it means I'll only accept truth that satisfies my need for boasting, and that from the very start rules out the gospel because the gospel includes no boasting whatsoever. Ironically, for the Corinthian church, I think the temptation to boast might actually be aggravated by their status as Christians. And so the temptation to boast is present in everyone. But when you have a people that are uh, especially prone to shame and embarrassment, it's going to heighten this temptation. Uh, they're ostracized from their culture as Christians, and so they're operating from a baseline of shame. And so their shifting convictions around Paul's ministry are not coming from a place of honest, prayerful inquiry, right? They are overcompensating for their own insecurity. Rather than receive 
the only satisfying cover for shame, which comes from our acceptance in Christ, the Corinthians were grasping at philosophy and rhetoric and cultural influence uh, to cover over their shame. They were trying to beat the world at its own game when Christ is pointing out that that game is done. It's over. It's a dead end. I see myself in the Corinthians. Do you see yourself there? Where are you most prone to boast in knowledge? Where do you want to boast in knowledge? Where are you most prone to insecurity? And how much does boasting and insecurity influence what you accept and won't accept, what you pursue and what you avoid? Uh, So many people in our world go hard right, hard left, hard middle. They're very locked in to a stream, a tribe, because their identity is founded in that tribe. It is the false self that they have constructed for themselves. And I feel like the fact that there's a right-left political dynamic in all our conversations about knowledge, um, it's, it's wild reading the news and how everything is coded as political. Everything is coded. Um, And that shows how so much of our truth-seeking is socially informed. And that means it's shame-informed. That we are actually choosing what to pursue, what to know, what to believe, based on what other people say. And not just based on the truth. It's so important that you and I pay attention and be curious about the shame we feel around Jesus, faith, the church, beliefs. And so I need to pay attention to the shame I felt in a prayer walk. Like, why is that coming up for me? And how is it skewing, how is it invisibly present in other parts of my life? And how is it skewing uh, my pursuit of Jesus? Don't push those feelings away. Test them. Where and with whom do you feel ashamed of Christ? And how does that impact your quest for truth and knowledge? Uh, Shame tends to foreground others in the pursuit of truth, where we're thinking, what does this person think? Do I still belong to this group? Or have I left it for another tribe? Where is Christ in your pursuit of truth? Can you foreground him and his grace for you? Where is the cross of Christ and the glory of suffering? Whose glory are you after with your knowledge, with the pursuit of truth, the sharing of truth? What would it look like for you and for us, for our church, like Paul, to throw the game? I don't even know what that would be like, to intentionally downplay natural strengths because we want the power to be obviously centered on Jesus? Where will we set aside eloquent words, reputation, and instead emphasize the gospel's foolishness and weakness in our faith and practice? Are there ways that our spiritual life and faith is actually robbing Christ's cross of its power because it's so presentable, it's so smooth and understandable, it's too right? Do you, like me, need to go on more prayer walks? That's an obvious implication of my experience. Like, I need to prayer walk more. I need to take my kids on more prayer walks and talk with them. Do we need to make time again? Do you need to 
make time for foolish things, for practicing the Sabbath, even though you're terrible at it. You have way too much to do in six days. It seems foolish to take a day off, and yet that is what the Lord is calling you to do. Do you need to fast more? Who doesn't feel foolish fasting, right? But that is what God says heightens our prayers. He listens to our prayers, especially when we don't eat. Do we need to set alarms? Do you need to set an alarm on your phone to pray and read your Bible every day, even though you've tried so many times before, you've never been good at it, and so you sort of have given up? Do it again. Be the fool. Do it not because you're supposed to, not because you get a lot out of it. Those would be very reasonable explanations. Do it because Jesus told you that he has given you the Holy Spirit to help you understand everything. And so you're just going to show up every day believing in him. Do you need to talk to your coworker, your neighbor, your family member about Jesus? You don't know what to say, but the thing is, if you knew exactly what to say, then that would rob the cross of its power. You going in blind, bumbling, where you, you think about it, you're like, I should have said this, I should have done this. Oh, man, that was so terrible. The weakness of God is stronger than the strength of men. The foolishness of the gospel is stronger than the wisdom of men. You don't have to compete with the world's wisdom. You have the foolishness of God. So much of the Christian life feels foolish, and we really should lean into that. There was a church planner who came and planted in San Jose when we first... um, planted so that we moved to the city or to the Bay Area about the same time. And I remember talking with him, and, and part of his vision, like in the vision statement, was making church normal. Like that was like on the website, making church normal. And I just remember thinking like, church is just not normal. Like it's just like, and uh, San Jose is a very different place than San Francisco, but like it's just really weird to like gather and sing and take communion and to to spend to our time doing the things that we're doing. And so I don't know that, ma- I, don't know that I can make it normal. Um, maybe I should lean into the weirdness of it and the obscurity of it and the wildness that we here are communing with the eternal God, that the Son of God came and became a man and died for us. That is a wild story, but it is true. And we should play it up. Do we need to ask God for healing again, even though we've asked so many times and he hasn't done it? Ask him for financial provision. Ask him for a spouse or a child. Whatever it might be, believing Jesus' wild statement that whatever you ask, God will give. Maybe you're not yet a Christian and there are some intellectual hurdles that you need to work through. Man, keep working through them. Read a bunch. Talk with me or a friend. Keep coming on Sundays. But what if you just tried talking to Jesus every day? That you just spoke to him like he could hear you and like he might talk back to you, like he might show himself in a vision to you and to your friend. That is a wild thing. Can we live into it? What if you ask for forgiveness for all the sins you've ever committed? What if you told someone, I think I'm a Christian? 
What if you take communion, believing that there's some power in it? For all of us, what regular act of faith feels foolish to you? Maybe you should do it because it, because it feels foolish. And what natural act feels foolish to not do? And that's why God is asking you to not do it. It really is baffling to think that Paul is downplaying his gifts to highlight grace. I, I mean, just you should sort of meditate and think like, what would that be in your life, at work, or wherever it might be that he would not do his best on purpose. And it's hard to fault the Corinthians for complaining. Paul is basically acknowledging that he could have made life easier for them, socially, culturally, but he chose a different strategy. Uh, It's good for us 2,000 years later to reflect on how Paul's strategy has worked out, how it's been vindicated. Uh, Where are the philosophers that the Corinthian church was so taken with? We actually don't know. We, like, scholars sort of, like, try to guess, but they have no idea, really. Well, I mean, they have an idea, but they don't, there's nothing of substance that we know who they are. Where are the rhetoricians, the gifted speakers that they thought Paul should emulate? What are the other religions that they felt so intimidated by? They're dead, all of them. Every single one of them is gone. These once culturally dominant social and religious forces are non-existent. And not only that, we don't know much about them because they weren't even important enough or long-lasting enough to leave behind much of a record. Most of what we do know actually comes from Paul, (laughs) ironically. It's good to think how many of the social, cultural, political, technological forces that feel so overwhelmingly strong right now, so much stronger than the church, that seems so cutting edge, so exciting and influential, that make us feel ashamed of our weakness and the weakness of faith, how many of them will still be relevant in a hundred years, in a thousand years, in 10,000 years? Scholars, if they are lucky, will talk about those people. But who are we talking about, everyday people, Who are everyday people around the world talking about? They're talking about Paul. They're talking about Jesus. They're talking about the cross. They're talking about the foolish ones. (coughs) APEC is about to turn the city upside down. I'm going to avoid the east side of the city for the next week. I I advise you to do the same. Um, I heard that they're closing down two lanes of the Bay Bridge for a few days, which is just bonkers. Um... Anyway, they're doing it for lots of reasons, but one is because the two most important people in the world are going to be here together, right? President Biden, President Xi Jinping, like they're here and they're meeting, and, and so the whole city has to shift and adjust for that. And yet, APEC is not where the angels ascend and descend to heaven. There are no angels, no no. None of God's angels are there. Where do they ascend and descend? Where do they come through to do the work of the Lord? They come through the church. They come here. They come to you when you pray, when you read God's word, when you bumble through a a witness of some kind. That is where the power of God is. They come through churches in obscure places around the world, and no one knows the name of those churches 
And yet that is where the kingdom of God is. If they're lucky, scholars will remember the names of Biden and Xi. But what happens here will last forever. It's foolish, but it is the way God has set up the world. It's what he wants it to be like. The Apostle Paul was vindicated, not because of his method, but because of his message. He just wanted to make sure that his method didn't contradict that message, and so Paul's methods were foolish because his message was foolish. Last week, we talked about the foolishness of sin, which suppresses the truth and unrighteousness. Ironically, God's righteous response to our foolishness is some foolishness of his own. Uh, You can see that immediately in uh, Genesis 3, following Adam and Eve's sin, when God doesn't do what he said he would do and kill Adam and Eve. Is that not a foolish thing? He knew Adam and Eve's heart. He knew the effect of sin. He knew the pride and violence that would pass from them to Cain and then to their grandson, Lamech, and then to Pharaoh and to Babylon and to Rome and all the rest. God knew all of that. And yet he decided to not do the reasonable thing and kill him and judge him, but to respond to Adam's foolishness with some foolishness of his own when he spared their lives. The reasonable thing to do would have been to end it all, to start over, but God does not reason how we reason. On one of my favorite turns of phrase in scripture, Isaiah 118, after Isaiah talks about the great sinfulness of Israel, he says in verse 18, come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. That is not reasonable. <laughs> like, that, is, that makes no sense whatsoever. And yet that is how God reasons. Come now, let us reason together. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. This is not how the world is supposed to work. Who reasons like this? God does. If sin is foolish, is grace not more foolish? Romans 5, 6, 8, while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And if that weren't enough, we learn that the foolishness of forgiveness will happen through the death of his own son. The incarnation, when God becomes, takes on flesh in order to die. All the wisdom of man has been spent trying to rid ourselves of sin's stain, trying to overcome it. Consciously or unconsciously, all our religions and philosophies and APEC conferences and all those sorts of things are trying to rescue ourselves from sin at escaping death. But even Jewish religion, with all its advantages, having the very word of God, being the chosen people of God, they, he could, they could not rescue themselves. Romans 7.15, Paul, so devoted to God's word, he says, I do not understand my own actions. I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. 
I know that nothing good dwells in me, in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. What man's wisdom could not accomplish, God's foolishness gives freely. And that is God's design. 1 Corinthians 1, 21, Since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. God did not want us to earn knowledge of him. He wants us to receive it. It pleased God through the foolishness of what we preach to save those who believe. Jews demand signs, Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. God's foolishness is better than all humanity's wisdom combined. God's weakness is stronger than all our strength. In the end, no matter what you do, you're going to have to be a fool, and you have to go comfortable with it. And the question is, a fool with whom? Which foolishness will you finally embrace in the end, the foolishness of sin or the foolishness of grace? Will you bank on your own wisdom and strength, which can only go so far but never far enough, or will you rest in the foolishness and weakness of God, which at its very least vastly exceeds all you could ever need or want? Let's pray. Dear Father, we are thankful for the gospel which saves. We're thankful for grace. We're thankful for the way that you reason. Come, let us reason together. Father, I pray for those people here, all of us, myself included, who are wrestling with shame and discouragement and We've been trained by the world to reason in a way, and so we just are so discouraged and distraught and angry and frustrated. What we want to do, we can't do. What we don't want to do, we do all the time. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. That is our hope. Help us to be people who think foolishly like you, who live into grace, who embrace weakness. Would we be a church that revels in our weakness? Because we know that by our weakness, you are shown strong. Father, we love you. Thank you for loving us. Be good to us this morning and always. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.